0: Today's scripture reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. That's the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can turn to page 923. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, My joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases so your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. It is a great uh, privilege and pleasure to be with you on this Lord's Day. Uh, I've had the genuine joy of being uh, at your, as I understand it, your first ever ever men's retreat, uh, where the men came aside for a couple of days uh, to study the Word, to be men of God. And as I had the opportunity to get to know uh, your pastors, uh, some of your church leaders, and the men of your church... um, I just want to tell you how encouraged I am by what God is doing uh, at the church gathered and scattered. Uh, As I said to the group last night, sometimes when you're in the midst of something, you don't quite know how good it is. Uh, When somebody from the outside comes and looks, they're able to tell you, this is a real blessing. And so I want to encourage you in all that you are doing and in the direction that you are going and I want to encourage you, if I might uh, be so bold, to be really thankful for the pastors and elders that you have. Uh, I get to teach at a seminary, I get to travel and uh, to a lot of churches, and uh, it's not always this faithful. And so I just want to encourage you uh, to encourage them and be thankful for them. Well, today our text is Philippians chapter 4, which just read for us. I'm going to focus in on verses 4 to 7. And... Um, we're going to look at the topic of the people of God, their joy in grace, the people of God, their joy in grace. As I was driving here this morning, uh, I was coming across some bridge, and I saw a billboard, and it said, "Feel the love," telling said, "Feel the love, join the joy." Lion King." And we're in that season when we're singing a lot about joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Uh, We're going to sing a lot about that. And then as I'm driving, I have my news podcast on, and I'm hearing about the awfulness of the shooting in Michigan. I'm reminded that, I think it was 2012, uh, and I was in a Christmas service. I was preaching a Christmas service. We're singing Joy to the World, and that week before uh, had been Sandy Hook. Uh, We are, we live in a world where we sing and fight for joy when there's actually a lot of suffering and corruption and evil, chaos and conflict in the world. The last, I don't have to convince you of that, last two years have made that very, very clear to us, haven't they? The global nature of the COVID crisis, its economic and social ripple effects have created confusion, conflict and chaos on a global scale on Mass And it's not just outside the church, it's in the church itself. And that's been compounded with the blitzkrieg of progressive social and sexual ideology that is revolutionizing every institution and sphere of life. So that it might say, as we head into the, you might feel as we head into this season that's supposed to be so much about joy, that the world is actually infused not so much with joy, but with a great deal of anxiety. Anxiety about the future, anxiety about our relationships, perhaps even anxiety about the faith. This was illustrated very pointedly for me recently by the comments of a mature pastor that I really respect. He's an even-keeled, steady, always warm disposition. Not your, your pastors. This was a while ago, and, uh, and and as this pastor recounted the turmoil and division in this past season, this even-keeled, steady, always warm pastor he said as he looked at this next round of decision making for his church he says i don't think i don't think i want to do this again he's not alone the reports of pastors quitting or questioning the ministry in the past 2 years are absolutely staggering and the pressure's not just on pastors and church leaders anxiety has Captured and is controlling masses of our population. Books are being written on it. Studies are being done on it. Irrespective of age or social demographic or faith commitment, anxiety is off the charts because of the conflict, because of the chaos, because of the context in which we presently live. We turn to Philippians chapter 4. It gives us a very concrete picture into the difficulty that is being experienced by the Christians in Philippi. At our retreat this weekend, we learned from the end of chapter 1 that opposition from the pagan Roman culture that ruled the city was causing suffering in which the church really needed to stand together and walk faithfully with the gospel. And then we learned from chapter 3 that there was such significant doctrinal deviation that Paul identified those who were teaching the false doctrine get the language Philippians Philippians chapter 3 verse 2 Paul identifies those who are teaching the false doctrine as dogs So the people of God in Philippi are under assault from the surrounding community they're under assault from a false gospel and then we learn now in Philippians chapter 4 that they are significantly divided within the church Two of Paul's former gospel partners, women by the names of Iodia and Sintike, are not able to agree, it tells us in chapter 4, verse 2, and put the way it is here in the text, their disagreement must have been personal and it must have been public. See, if it had been doctrinal and not personal, Paul, who just called out the false teachers as dogs, would not have been silent about it being a doctrinal issue. If it had been private and not public, Paul would not have exposed it for the whole church throughout history to have seen. So what we've got in Philippians 4 is a personal division between two former partners in the gospel that seems to have infiltrated and be affecting the whole church. And it's now into this context that Paul, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, writes the final commands about joy into an anxiety-producing complex of cultural opposition, doctrinal deviation, relational division with former gospel partners, Paul sends this command to rejoice. Now that's actually really helpful for us, actually really good news for us, because what we learn is that the call to rejoice, unlike that billboard that I saw, is not romanticized. It is not a a sterilized hypothetical theological maxim for a church that is at ease in a sympathetic culture. And sometimes we hear this command to rejoice in the Scriptures, and we think, well, this must be written by people and two people who all they ever experience are happy circumstances. They're experiencing blessing all the time. And so Paul can write and say rejoice and expect them to rejoice. That's not where he was. It's not where the Philippians were. So this teaches us that in an anxious world, we can pursue the blessing of God's peace in our gospel partnerships with God's people by following, in these few verses, Philippians 4, 4-7, what I'm going to call the pathway, the imperative pathway to peace. Surrounded by dogs, infected by division, Philippians 4, 4-7 gives us a series of imperatives or commands that in their context provide a pathway to God's peace in our partnerships for the gospel with God's people. So let me state in one sentence what this, these verses 4-7 to teach us. Here's, here's the takeaway. If you don't hear anything after this, take this away with you. As God's people, when we are faced with dogs and division... Pursue the peace of gospel partnership by rejoicing in the Lord. As God's people, when we are faced with dogs and division, pursue the peace of gospel partnership by rejoicing in the Lord. So this passage, Philippians 4, 4 4-7, is a series of commands. They're all logically connected to promoting joy in the Lord in the context of relational difficulty. And what he does then is he lays down this pathway to restoring peace and gospel partnerships by rejoicing in the Lord. And so I'd like to focus this morning on, if we could put it this way, three stepping stones in the imperative pathway. Three stepping stones that are found in the imperative pathway, the the pathway of commands from verses four to seven. Here's the first one. Here's the first stepping stone. First, choose joy in the Lord choose joy in the Lord. We're headed into this season when kids' eyes just light up, don't they? I remember when I was a little boy in Scotland, and you know, with all of our screens, this isn't the case anymore. When I was a little boy growing up in Scotland, we used to get a thing called a catalog. It was actually about this thick. And it would come in the mail, and I, I can still smell the print off of it. And I would flip to the section with all of the toys in it, and my eyes would light up, and my mother would get exasperated with, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. I can remember when I set aside, I wanted a particular action figure. And I had to save up for the action figure. And I waited for the action figure to arrive in the store. And I actually put a little money down in the store. And my heart was fixed on this action figure. You can imagine the little child doing that. I have, as I told the men, I have seven grandchildren. My oldest is my granddaughter. And this, uh, her past birthday, this July, her eighth birthday, uh, she wanted horse riding lessons. And she knew the way to get horse riding lessons was just simply to drop near her grandmother and grandfather. Like, You know what I'd really like my birthday? I'd really like, and her eyes light up, horse riding lessons. Well, when she found out she was getting horse riding lessons, you just kind of can see her face, right? It's not just children. We do this. We have our treasures. We have our delights. We, we, we place our... Joys in our profile. We place our joys in our portfolio. We place our, we put our delight, we fix our delight, the desires of our heart in our possessions. We fix our delight and desires in our security, our family's security, uh, and, and the success of our kids. Adults have their delights and joys too. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis uh, talked about the desires and joys of our hearts, and he said this It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot understand what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Verse 4 of Philippians 4 is a command to set that desire, set that delight of our hearts in the Lord rejoice in the Lord who he is what he has done what he will do paul has just reminded them up in chapter 3 of the surpassing worth of the lord he's of greater value than absolutely everything because he is our righteousness he is our justification before god and by his resurrection he is our life from God. not just that back in chapter 2 the, the purpose of this whole season we're about to celebrate with so much joy is that he was revealed to be the glorious son of God we just confessed it who in humility came down took on a human nature to serve and to suffer for our salvation but now is raised and is exalted in glory as absolute Lord over all what Paul is saying is fix your heart fix your delight fix your desire fix your joy on the Lord why Because when the delight of our heart is fixed on that glorious one, when the desire of our heart is fixed on Him, all the stuff that puts us in competition and conflict with other Christians just pales and loses its seemingly ultimate value that it has held on our hearts. When our joy is the Lord, who He is, what He's done, what He's going to do, then our rights Our reputation, our security, our pride, our possessions, our position, which are so often the issues in our conflicts, all of that, when He's our joy, all of that loses its luster. When the Lord is our joy, the personal desires and drives that divide us aren't. Would you notice how emphatic and comprehensive the command is? If your Bible's open, you're looking at verse four. He says it twice, He really wants it to stick. And he wants us to make this choice in all of life, always. Now, I want to remind you, it's not as though the Apostle Paul is naively this emphatic. Rejoice in the Lord, always. I'll say it again, rejoice. He's not naive about this. Remember where he is. Paul himself's in prison. Chapter 1, verse 18, he says he's in prison for Christ. And while he's in prison, his rivals are still seeking to afflict him. And then chapter 2, verse 17, get this, he said his life is being poured out as a drink offering in the sacrifice of Christ's cause. And chapter 2, verse 18, in light of that, he says, you should rejoice with me and be glad. I want you to know that the inspired writer of the Scripture is not issuing this command to joy from the theoretical comfort of a theologian's study. He's in prison for the gospel. He knows what it is to choose joy in the Lord in betrayal, in misrepresentation, in injustice, oppression, deprivation, bodily pains. This is a command from a suffering, spirit-dependent, spirit-inspired spokesman of the Lord. It's rejoicing in the Lord that is the spiritual stepping stone for all of the other commands that are to follow. Because the joy He commands is not only emphatic... He does it twice. It's not only comprehensive. He commands it all the time. But fundamentally, this isn't just Lion King joy. This is Christian joy. Perhaps when you hear this command to choose joy, something just seems kind of off. How do I choose an emotion? How do I choose an an affection? That just seems a step too far. It's just too difficult for me to reach. A deliberate decision of the will to choose something to delight in. Isn't that just something that's automatic? Isn't it reflexive? Like, if you've got the picture of the pathway, the, the daddy who's leading his little daughter through the hike in the woods and they come to a stream and there's the pathway across from the stones and he starts to take the stones and the little daughter steps on one stone on the first pathway, needs to get to the other, and then says, Daddy, I can't. It's just too far for me. Well, you know what the daddy's going to do. He's going to reach back from that second stone and he's going to take her hand. He's going to pull her right across to the second stone. It's kind of what we considered in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, as we, uh, yesterday, when we looked at how it is that God works in us the will and the want to, to do what He commanded us to. In Philippians two, twelve to 13, He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so, not, so now not only... Uh, not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling now here's the here's the cause for it is god who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure the great news of that verse is that god works in us the very want to and the can do for what he's commanded us to he's the one who actually reaches back from the second from the stepping stone and pulls us across to where we need to be And so, what Jesus, so so what we are being commanded here is to rely on the Lord to choose the desire of our heart. What Paul is doing is he's taking the gospel he's preached in Philippians 2 and the gospel he's preached in Philippians 3, and now he's applying it right to the desires of our heart. And he's saying, Obey in what you love, choose joy in the Lord. And in that context, with those gospel resources, that overarching command to rejoice in the Lord is a stepping stone on the rest of the pathway to gospel peace. And the next of which is, not only choose joy in the Lord, but secondly this morning, choose the reasonableness of the Lord. If you look at the text, Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. There's a great scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a scene at the stone table. If you've read it or you've seen the movie, perhaps you remember the stone table when King Aslan, the great lion, is about to give up his life and sacrifice for foolish Edmund. And The way Lewis tells the story in the book, Aslan just sort of surrenders. He lays, he lays himself down, and Lucy and Susan hold their breath, waiting for Aslan's roar. But it never came Lewis writes, hags grinning and leering, dwarfs and apes rushed to bind him, shouting, cheering as they rolled over the great lion on his back, as if they had done something brave. As th- and though had the lion chosen, one of those great paws would have been the death of them all. Kind of pictures what the Apostle Paul's trying to get to here in the word reasonableness. When Aristotle sought to describe what was meant by this Greek word translated as reasonableness, he put it this way, content to receive a smaller share although he has the law on his side. One exegetical commentator described it this way, the word reasonableness, not insisting on every right or letter or law or custom, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant, Paul uses the word in a number of other places to describe Christian character. Interestingly, particularly, he uses it of Christian leaders. If you've got a Bible, just turn with me, if you would, for a second to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, he describes the characteristics of Christian leaders this way. 1 Timothy 3, 3 he says he's, to, he's not to be a drunkard, not violent but gentle. There's the word, same word as our reasonableness. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Here's a picture. Do you remember the little boy who, when his sibling took his toy car, he flew into an emotional rage and he puts the whole family on edge? Nobody like that in any of your families, right? What Paul's saying is the mature Christian leader is the opposite of that. Gentle, not quarrelsome, says Paul. The word pictures a disposition of spirit that chooses not to rise to the quarrel even when you might be in the right. It doesn't say nobody's ever going to take your toys, but what comes out of you when they do is completely counterintuitive to the corrupted human condition. And the reason that's to be characteristic of Christian leaders, by the way, is it's to be uh, characteristic of Christians in general. Over in Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, pardon me, Titus chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he says this about Christians in general. Titus chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he says this, that we are, he says that we are to, be, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, there's the word, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. One more scripture, the Apostle James says this characteristic gentleness is distinctive of the wisdom that comes from above versus that which is earthly and demonic. Over in James chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, "...who is wise and understanding among you," this is James, "...by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not base, boast and be false to the truth." This is not wisdom that comes from down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambi- ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom, the, fr- the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, here it is again, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. Here's why I take the time to read those passages to you this morning, because they make so vivid what seems to be so absent in the com- Christian community at large lately gentle patience, forbearance in the storm of conflict, and reasonableness. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 Paul speaks to every believer in Philippi and he commands them to let this characteristic of reasonableness, gentleness, to show up, to be manifest, to be visibly seen in their engagements with, do you notice who in the text? Everyone. Your spouse, your family, your fellowship, your ministry partners, your neighbors. As people in Christ who rejoice in Christ, in the Lord, we are commanded to display that gentle patience, that reasonableness in the midst of circumstances that can create real anxiety, controversy, and conflict. One of the most important books for me personally in the last two years has been a book by a Puritan named Richard Sibbs. The book is called The Bruised Reed*. I commend it to you highly. Sibs picks up on the revelation of Christ in Isaiah chapter 42 verses 2 to 3 which says this He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street a bruised reed he will not break a faintly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice oh what a counterintuitive way the messiah brings forth justice Then he then Sibs expounds on how This shows how Christ deals with us and then by implication, therefore, how we should deal with others. Sibs drops little beauties, little gems like this. He says this, Where most holiness is, there is most moderation. Where it may be without prejudice of piety to God and the good of others. We see in Christ a a marvelous temper of absolute holiness with great moderation. What should have become of our salvation if He had stood upon terms? And not stooped low unto us. We need not affect to be more holy than Christ. It is not flattery to do as He does so long as it is to edification. The point being that Christ in all His majesty comes to us, us, in our rebellious, sinful misery and brokenness and He treats us mercifully, gently, patiently, As he leads us by the hand to heaven. Now, just for a minute, I'm gonna ask you to turn off that yes, but setting in your internal operating software. Remember the Christ-centered foundation that Paul has given us for our own attitudes and actions towards others. Back in that chapter, majestic chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the fact that Christ did not cling to His rights to manifest His glory, for us came down and gave up His reputation as righteous on a cross. Think Aslan going to the stone table. That means that we should, with His mind, Paul says, have His humility to hang on to your seats, count others more significant than yourself. Husbands. Wives, children, parents. Looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. As Aristotle put it, content to receive a smaller share, though the law might be on our side. The Lord in the service of our salvation gave up His rights. He gave up His reputation when He was reviled he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to him who judges rightly. The Lord Almighty did not break bruised reeds or quench burning, wheat, quench burning wicks, and we are in the Lord and the Lord is in us. So, so commands the Lord. Let your reasonableness, your patient gentleness show up in all, with all of the sinners that you have to relate to. The point is, when we are rejoicing in the Lord, when He, not all of our stuff, is the delight of our heart, the gentle reasonableness of the Lord is what shows up in your interactions with other people. Can you imagine the difference this would make in a marriage? Can you imagine the difference this would make in a conflict in a ministry? Not insisting on our rights, far less on our wants, What does James say in James chapter 4? What causes fights and quarrels amongst you? You don't get what you want, so you murder and kill each other. Now, let me go back to the internal software and the yes but setting and be crystal clear. We are living in a time when we're being told that to be loving means we have to accept people and their sin. The New Orthodoxy says you define yourself before God even if that means celebrating what He calls sin And loving Christians just have to accept that. You may teach contrary to what the Scriptures say and the church must now, in order to be loving, just tolerate that, just put up with false doctrine. That's what we're being told in the culture. That's what we're being told in the church. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what he's teaching here. He's not tolerating the false teaching from those that in chapter 3, verse 2, he calls dogs doctrinally. He's not accepting the sin of Eodion Sintike when He exposes it and addresses it publicly to the church. So the reasonableness, the forbearance, the gentleness He commands, hear me, please hear me, is not a compromise of truth. It's not a compromise of righteousness. It's about the mode in which we contend for the truth and contend for righteousness. It's about selfless kindness toward others even when standing for the truth, must put us in conflict with them. Let me read to you that other picture of the Messiah from Psalm 45 and this handsome blend. You're the most handsome of the sons of men, Psalm 45. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. There it is. In Him, the Messiah. That handsome blend of awesome majesty and tender meekness. Grace in the cause of truth. Is that not what we see in Him who has laid aside His rights to, dis- and to display His glory and came down to proclaim the truth to deliver us from our sin? See, what Paul is dropping into Philippians chapter 4 in this little word reasonableness is in one word, he's giving us what he gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Let me just read it to you. He says this, "...and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil..." Listen to the next part. "...correcting his opponents with gentleness. "...God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will." It's what Francis Schaeffer once called simultaneously communicating the holiness and the love of God. My friends, the point is that in the midst of conflict, we must contend with our own sin. We must contend with the sin of others. And we must contend for the truth, for the glory of God and the eternal good of others. And in the midst of that conflict, in the midst of that contention for truth... For righteousness, for the glory of God, for the eternal good of others, we must show the reasonableness of the Lord, His patient, forbearing, gentleness. I mentioned to you that I grew up in Scotland. I was just turning twelve years old when I moved to Canada, and then later moved to the United States. And I grew up in Scotland. I told the, the men this the other day. The other day that uh, my dad was a policeman in the city of Glasgow. And uh, if you know anything about uh, British police officers, they don't carry guns. And so my dad was a police officer in the city of Glasgow, which, where he his beat was basically like being in the Bronx. So my dad was the biggest, toughest, meanest dude in our neighborhood. I remember going to a professional soccer game, an international soccer game in Glasgow one night. I was just a little boy, just a little guy like this. And there's... Tens of thousands of people at the game. The game ends, and we go to make our way out of the stadium, out to the street. And so my dad begins to just take me out of the stadium. He puts his arm around me like this, and he puts one big hand out like this, and one arm in front of me, and he starts to move. And I remember very vividly, he bumps up against the man in front of us. And the man, for whatever foolish reason, turns around and squares up with my dad. And I remember my little little head going, sir, this is a grave error. This is a big mistake. You know, that kind of perspective is actually what the Apostle Paul is going to give to us next in Philippians chapter 4, kind of, Dad's got this one. And it's knowing that we are secure that enables us to be content and enables us to be gentle. It's that kind of perspective. Do you notice the next thing he says to them in Philippians chapter 4? Look at what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then he seems to drop something in. It just seems out of place. The Lord is at hand. You know what he's telling them? Jesus has got this. And he's got you. And he's coming again. It's actually not random. In fact, it's been a controlling consideration for the whole passage. The knowledge of the Lord's return has been pivotal for Paul's joy from the beginning of the letter. The day of Christ Jesus has been in his sights and their progress towards perfection on that final day. The day of Christ has set the vision for His ministry in chapter 2 and 3 and just before this He's told us that the difference between the dogs who deviate from the gospel and the Christian is that they are earthly and that our citizenship is actually in heaven from where we await our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. What He's telling us is the reason we can rejoice the reason that we can be reasonable, the reason that we can be patient the reason that we can be gentle in the midst of all of the conflict and all of the controversy is Jesus has got this. He's coming back, and He's going to set things right. He's telling them to calibrate their affections, their attitudes, their actions to the moment when the Lord will return and He will set things right. You see, the day is coming. Listen to this. The day is coming when Christ, not in humiliation, but in exultation will have every knee bow and every tongue confess Him as Lord. And that day of open, visible, universal revelation of His Lordship, it's that day when He comes that righteousness and justice will be consummately accomplished. Peace then will rule. Beauty and order will be restored. Perfection then will pervade. And all those who are united to Him will be lifted from humiliation and from this world's sin and suffering. The revelation of the Lord is at hand. So Christians, don't fret. Don't fume in your own cause when your faith and hope and desires and delight are focused on Him and what we will receive at His majestic return. I've wondered if a key lesson that the Lord would have us learn in the last two years from the unraveling of so much that we have staked our joys on, I wondered if one of the lessons might be that the Lord has been trying to wean us off being so tied to this world, so tied to the security, the success, the treasures, the position, the pleasures of this life as our joy and to get our eyes once again on that moment when He returns. Uh, not far from here is a place called Princeton, and there's a seminary that used to, we used to call Old Princeton that used to be really committed to biblical doctrine. And the first guy that was a professor at that seminary was a man named Archibald Alexander. And Ale- Archibald Alexander in the 19th century uh, was writing, he wrote, a, he wrote a, a, a famous and fabulous book called Thoughts on Religious Experience. And in that, he talked about sanctification and spiritual warfare. And at the beginning of the outbreak of the pandemic, I happened to be reading Archibald Alexander on sanctification and spiritual warfare. And this is what he said. This was in March when we started to find out what was going on. He said this, God holds a rod for His own children. He wrote this in the 19th century. God holds a rod for His own children, and when the warnings and exhortations of the Word and the secret whispers of the Spirit are neglected, Some painful providence is sent, some calamity, which has so much natural connection with the sin as to indicate that it is intended as chastisement for it. I wonder if the Lord's trying to get the church's attention. With everything that we thought we could count on, everything we fret over, everything we fume over, everything we set our joys over, gone because of a bug. Could it be that the rapid erosion of our joy is a providential sign to us that what we've longed for and labored for in the lives of those who are important to us has begun, has been something other than which God has promised to last for His glory. Here's the point. Paul drops the reorienting promise into the middle of commands to rejoice. Be reasonable in the midst of personal conflict because the Lord is at hand. And it's not all about what you have here and now or what you're worried about in the future. Choose joy in the Lord. Choose reasonableness in the Lord. Finally, and more briefly, choose open-hearted conversation with the Lord over anxiety. Choose open-hearted conversation with the Lord over anxiety. Look at back at the text, if you would, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anxiety, to quote David Powlison, is when hijackers seize control of your mind. If you've experienced anxiety or if you're prone to it you know it can be momentary it can be prolonged it can even have physiological consequences for you anxiety is when the concerns and cares of this life harass and even begin to rule over one's soul i actually think it's really important to notice what is not said or not implied in this passage it's not saying there are no circumstances there are no concerns or cares in this life that can actually tempt us to anxiety The Philippians had a few of them themselves. If we were to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we'd find out that they're struggling financially. The culture of the imperial city is against them. Their joy in the gospel of grace is under attack by false teachers. And now their relationships, their friendships and fellowship are fractured. As I was writing this message, I got news of two two different friends, both in their middle age and with thriving lives who have just now suddenly received a diagnosis of cancer. Another friend is suffering from the grief of having to move from their family home of 46 years because they can no longer cope. A young mother is struggling to learn how to live with little sleep because her new baby cries and cries and cries and cries and cries all night. Another is at their wit's end with a strong-willed toddler who refuses to obey no matter how much prayer, how much discipline is employed, how much good teaching is offered. People suffer. There's such a thing as bad marriages, bad bosses, bad churches, and bad government. We do not live in a risk-free, evil-free, suffering-free world. And the apostle wasn't thinking that, and he wasn't implying that when he said, don't be anxious for anything. What we're being commanded here is not to allow those concerns in this world to hijack and rule our soul. To so dominate our hearts and minds, our affections and attitudes, that anxiety begins to drive our actions, particularly in this context, in our relationship to others. See, anxiety kills joy, it fuels fearful, impatient, unreasonableness, and is often actually at the root of personal attacks on others. Do you remember what Jesus taught his disciples about the cares of this life? You can take time maybe to read it later Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Don't be anxious about your life because, number one, your life is more than the concrete cares of this life. Two, your life really is in the kingdom of heaven with God. And three, God is your all-knowing, loving Father who delights to give you what you really need, the kingdom of God. What you really need are the eternal blessings of His kingdom. So take the concerns, this is what Paul says here, take the concerns of this life to your Father. You notice how he puts the, the command to pray here? I love the way he puts this. He, look at the way he puts it. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, watch this, let your request be known to God. Why, because God doesn't know? Of course he knows. He's omniscient. He knows your thoughts before you know your thoughts. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, Your Father knows your need before I ask him. The emphasis isn't on God finding out something God doesn't know. The emphasis is on us opening our hearts to God, making our requests known to God. It's a call for us to come to the one who in Christ has become our Abba and come to him and say, Abba, Father, I need you. This world is terrifying. This world is crushing. I'm suffering. Make your requests known to God. I wonder how we might assess our own reflexes in this when anxieties threaten to take control. What's your first reflex? I don't mind is talk to somebody else. Talk to an ally. Talk to some prince upon whom I have trusted. What's our reflex here? Talk to your father. You're all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good all the time father and what's the conclusion the conclusion then is this that the peace of god will guard your heart and mind in christ jesus well uh, at the risk of overplaying the scotland illustrations uh, there's a castle in the capital of scotland edinburgh and there is called edinburgh castle and perhaps you've seen it uh, if you watch the crown and these kind of things buckingham and buckingham palace you've got the, the guard that guards the gate and they uh, they've got the big furry hats, and they, make the, they do the changes in, in time, and people show up to watch it. Well, Edinburgh Castle is something similar. They don't actually have the guys with the hats. They have a guy standing at the box, and he's got a machine gun, and he's, he's wearing a kilt, which is a kilt. It's not a skirt. He, he's, he's, he's wearing a kilt. And what you recognize is I'm not going through that gate without a lot of trouble. Here's what Paul says to Christians living in a military city in Philippi that were used to seeing military people around them. He says, When you make your request known to God, the peace of God will garrison your heart and mind. It will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It's a promise of protection, not for the material of this world, but for our hearts and our minds. And so... What we are being called to in this passage in a conflict-ridden, corrupted, chaos-inducing, anxiety world is to choose the pathway of peace by rejoicing in the Lord, by being reasonable and letting our reasonableness be known to others and making our requests known to God. But there's a key to this imperative pathway, and with this I conclude. Do you notice the key? The key is, Christ Jesus, rejoice in the Lord and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Christ is the key to the imperative pathway. Christ for us. Christ in us. Christ coming again for us. Well, my two boys were growing up. there was a season in which uh, we homeschooled them. Mom did most of the work. I showed up to dinner. We homeschooled the boys, and uh, we actually were giving the, we actually gave them original sources to read. And they read a book that had a story about a sailing ship that had uh, lost, its, lost its wind off the coast of South America. And the sailors were expiring. They were lying around on the deck trying to catch their wind. They ran through the fresh water supply that they had brought along with them. And uh, they had no water. They had no wind. And so they were dying in the sun. They had their sails up, trying to, get, trying to get shade, trying to get some wind. And then off on the horizon, they saw a mast and a sail. And through the system of semaphore, they signaled, send fresh water or we die. They got a signal back that said, put down your buckets where you are. They signaled again, you don't understand Send fresh water or we die. Same signal, come back. Put down your buckets where you are. Finally, a third time, desperately, they signaled, Send fresh water or we die. Same signal, came back. Put down your buckets where you are. Finally, one of the sailors on the stranded ship, thinking he was going to drink salt water to his death, so we might as well try something, threw the bucket over the side, pulled it back up through the rope, and began to drink, thinking this is it. I'm going to drink salt water to my death, only to taste wonderful fresh water. And what they hadn't realized is that the entire time they were sending off the mouth of the Amazon River and fresh water had been pouring under their ship the entire time. So many times Christians in this world are like that. You have everything that you need in Christ Jesus. You're in Christ. And all you've got to do is by faith put your bucket down into Christ. Christ for you. Christ in you. Christ who is coming again for you so that you can rejoice in the Lord as you pursue peace with the people of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this, your word, and uh, that you have given to us your inspired, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient word. Thank you that this word reveals to us your glory in the face of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we would pray for each and every one who's heard this message today. If there would be one who as yet has not believed in Christ, O oh Lord, would you give the gift of the grace of faith. And then, Lord, for each and every one who's a believer here, would you deepen our faith? Would you deepen our hope? Would you deepen our joy in the Lord? where we need repentance and weaning off the things of this world, would you work your fatherly work? And Lord, would you help us together, by faith, to put our hope in the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ on that day. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.